today's episode of Heritage Hunters. And they shuffle around and finally number two stands up. And I'm looking at my father live and in person walking and talking for the first time, dating back to 1961. Can you imagine? Hi, I'm Barbara. And I'm Hope. And we, we are, are the, the Heritage, Heritage Hunters. Each month, we will bring you real stories from real people researching their genealogy and family history to inspire you on your genealogical journey. On today's episode, we have with us today, Mr. Keith Mason, who has written a book called Please Stand Up. And we will put that link in the description of our podcast. So Keith, welcome to the show. We're glad you're here. Glad to be had. Thanks very much for the invitation and for the acceptance. And I spent a couple of years, as we'll talk about, going through a lot of the things that your regular listeners go through, and then have gone through some things <laughs> through a very own personal side door. I feel relevant. And I appreciate, uh, again, you having me on the program. Welcome. We are glad that you're here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your book? How much time do you have? As much time as you want. We'll just let that roll. I never expected to write the book or any book. In terms of the craft of writing, I've been a nonprofit communications guy for years in public relations, newsletters and video scripts and advertising and marketing and annual reports and these kinds of things to encourage the press, encourage the media, encourage the public, support this, support that, lots of good things. So all of my work, my whole career, ever since I was the editor of my high school paper, has been short form. And it wasn't until I began my great adventure in October of 2016 that it even remotely occurred to me that there was a book out there of what I was going through. But uh, as the adventure began, a little while into it, it seemed to me to be a dereliction of duty to not do what I could with this. So you call yourself a writer, are you going to write this up or not? Are you going to share this with everybody or is it just going to be an anecdote for the dinner table? Okay. So I began it as, I'll do 12 pages on this first thing that happened to me. Esquire will buy it. Somebody will buy it. The internet will buy it somewhere. And uh, I'll give myself three months, we'll make something out of it. And three months and 12 pages turned into six months and 24 pages, which turned into 14 months and 67 pages. And it just went on and on. And at some point I'm looking at, I guess I'm going to write a book. Uh, so I spent a lot of time developing what skills I had into the skills of writing a book, which are different from dashing off a paragraph you know, to you know, the press or to the board of directors or to the whoever. So I had to develop myself as a writer, as a professional to do this properly, to do it well. Although I told myself at some point, okay, we'll get this thing printed. We'll get this thing published after 32 drafts or whatever I ended up with. Okay. Enough is enough. Just get it out there make it as good as you can. You're not going to be a historian like Eric Walton, you're not going to be a, an academic memoirist like Danny Shapiro. It turned into Eric meets Danny is what it 
amounts to. In terms of the book itself, it just happened because I had to make it happen. It's simple as that. In terms of why I went to the trouble for four years to write a book, it was a dark and stormy night in October. I don't know if it was a dark and stormy night. It was just an autumn night in, in 2016. I was 64. And the big part of the backstory is I never knew my father. And my mother and he had split up while I was in utero. And through my childhood, I was raised in my grandparents' house. Uh, she found her, kept her home with them, and I was raised there, which was great. I had more people around me than just to be the child, uh, the only child of a single working mom. I had more family around me, which was very valuable to me, but I didn't know anything about him. The name or the subject was never broached around the dinner table. At some point when I got to be, I don't know what the age is, but eight, nine, 10, and she would tell me, if you ever have any questions about your dad, you ask me and I'll tell you. But I didn't feel I wanted to. I didn't want to have her go through her old story. She was a, um, a professional, a nurse in Philadelphia. We lived over in South Jersey. And I didn't, even at that age, I didn't want to force my mom to have to uh, wrestle out a stuck drawer in the dresser of her life, so to speak. So I didn't ask things. One day when I was 14, we'd moved into an apartment of our own because I was getting too big for my grandparents and they were getting too old for me. And eventually somebody was going to burn the house down. So my mom got an apartment, we moved out. And uh, during that unpacking phase, she hands me an envelope, uh, like a, a nine by 12 manila envelope. Here's some stuff about your father. And in there were copies of two different articles in Newsweek magazine from back in the early 60s because he was apparently a deep-sea salvage diver who had engaged himself in some controversy raiding these sunken German U-boats off of Rhode Island. Brought up a body when he wasn't supposed to, stuff like that. Okay, all right, here's this guy. There was also a reference in there to him being a heating oil engineer and a father of five. Oh, okay. All right, dad went off, he had made his life, he went down some road, created another family, has a different life. Okay. All right. Thanks, mom. Let me just digest this. And that's really as far as it went. Fast forward to 2016. And I'm older now. And you get past some of the disgruntlements of your youth and you mellow out. And now you want to maybe understand the world a little better. I'd spent years not thinking about them, not answering questions from women I dated or, for that matter, women I married or friends around the poker table. No, I'm not interested. Everybody else seemed to be more interested in than him than I was because I was not going to dignify the guy with my curiosity. But then I'm older, maybe I'll, maybe there's something out there because I knew he was a guy. He wasn't a pharmacist or a farmer or a tool salesman from Poughkeepsie. He was this controversial guy back in the 60s. Maybe there's something out there because the internet has everything. Okay. So every so often I'd have a spare 15 minutes or something like that in my life. I'd be in the basement. I'd be tickering around on the computer and all right, I'll put in some keywords, see what comes along. And over a period of maybe a, a year or two, 
as the internet polished itself up, I did come across some things. There would be an article about him in a a New England newspaper or uh, some snippet of a magazine or a snippet of something. So I accumulated some stuff and uh, it was interesting to accumulate things. Here was this guy. There was a photograph of him uh, on a dock with a partner wrestling around with some booty from a submarine. Excuse my pauses. I have a bit of a throat today, so I'm going after my juice box here. I found a few things, but they hit a dead end because after a while, the same stuff was coming up, the same headlines, the same bits of newspapers. You get a Yahoo display of of pictures of U-boat sailors and American sailors on the deck waving at you, just the standard stuff. And it ran out of steam after a while. So I was getting to the point, there's really nothing new to find. Okay, I found out a few things, and that kind of colors the picture. I was about to just let it all go. And then in the aforementioned October of 2016, I put in the keywords and looked down the first 10 things that come back on the internet, your first organic results. And down at the bottom, there was this thing. And the headline had some of my keywords. Burton, Mason, Diver, something like that. But underneath it was this picture of a little old white-haired lady, which made no sense to me. Oh, is this some other, his mother, or who's this person? What is this? And I click. And I had one of those moments where something flashes up at you. And, oh, I recognize what's here in front of me. I'm understanding what's printed underneath it. It's something that takes me back. It's from an old days kind of a thing. And all of this consideration of what I'm looking at takes about a quarter of a second for my brain to process. And I know what it is. And there's a video screen and I have to punch the little arrow that says go. And this is like stepping out of your parachuting for the first time or you're going out on stage for the first time, there's this moment where you know you're stepping out into, and I do the click and it begins. And I know that I'm looking at a video of the TV game show to tell the truth, which is on today in an episode on YouTube from 1961. And as I watch it, there are three black men who come up the the way the show was working for the three people in the audience who don't know how the show works the three people all claim to be one person and the celebrity panel has to guess who the real guy is and if you fool the panel you make some money and you get a free box of cigars or something like that and on this particular celebrity panel was johnny carson before the tonight show and kitty carlisle the doyen of broadway Tom Poston, who was a television comic from the old variety days, and another woman who was a sit-in for Julie Andrews when she was sick doing Sound of Music or something like that. So here's the celebrity panel, and here are these three black guys all pretending to be the ambassador from Sierra Leone. Okay, fine. And then there's a couple of commercials. Then these three ladies come up. Oh, here are the white-haired ladies, and they're all expert rabbit display artists or something like that from Indiana. And then come the final segment of the show, 
And it starts out in silhouette, then the lights go up, the camera zooms in, and the announcer is saying, what is your name, please? My name is Burton Mason. My name is Burton Mason. My name is Burton Mason. And I'm looking at these three guys. And one of them is the deep sea salvage expert, Burton Mason, plus two imposters. And one would think you'd know, oh, him. But I didn't. It wasn't until we got to the end of the six or seven minutes. And you'd think I'd recognize the nose, the face. I'd recognize something in one of these characters. And I just I didn't quite grab until finally, will the real Burton Mason please stand up? And they shuffle around and finally number two stands up. And I'm looking at my father live and in person walking and talking for the first time dating back to 1961. Can you imagine? And it took me, as I said, weeks and then months, and then went into years from that moment outbound to track him down. It took some months because there were three guys who could have been him. One had a New England basis. One had an Ohio basis. Another had a, a, yet another third basis. So I still wasn't sure exactly who the guy was. And by now I have my 27 pages. So it's going to be some sort of a story for, from somewhere from, who knows, you know, let's see what I can do with it. But there's no ending because I'm sick of the internet and I'm saying I'm not going to, I'm not going to take out a subscription to Ancestry. I'm not going to do all this. I'm not going to do all that. It's just a fun detective story for myself. It's not a big search, but I hit a wall. I'm not sure which of these three guys. And I need an ending to the story. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know how to end it because it's a mystery. I can't leave whatever reader happens along to look at this thing. I can't leave them hanging any more than I'm hanging. So one more time, I'll go back to the YouTube. Well, maybe there's something interesting on there. Let me count the clicks. Let me count the views. I can talk about that and let it go. And I get on this one time and down below the screen that's in front of me, we go down a little further and people leave comments. And there was a comment there that had not been there when I first looked at the YouTube and discovered my father or the subsequent ones when I went back to study the eyes and the nose and the gait and the cadence and the things that I was trying to work this guy out. And there was a comment that not, had not been there before. And the comment I'm paraphrasing here was, isn't this a great video about this deep sea diver? My husband is also a great diver, and that's his dad on the screen. So I'm looking at a comment left by the wife of a guy who's the son of the deep sea diver on to tell the truth, but it wasn't me. So everything goes out the window and thus starts another more than a year to track down who those people are. And from that point on, I'll bundle this to you. My father was essentially a sociopath. He was in and out of hot water of various kinds over the years. In some ways, dragging up a skeleton out of a U-boat was just, just dessert for him with some of the stuff he went through. He was married seven times to six women. I had eight other siblings 
that he had produced. There was a retired homicide cop from Ohio. There was a guy who had been living an hour's drive from me in Pennsylvania for the last 20 years. The youngest one had died of AIDS back in the 90s in New Orleans. A couple of sisters sprinkled through. And the research then led me to his father, his parents. My grandfather was much like me. He'd been a reporter in his younger years. He'd gone into the public relations world. And there's a, as long a story as I can give you with my grandfather. Suffice to say that he ended up in a dusty town in southwest, the southeast Texas near Corpus Christi called Alice, Texas. And there in 1949, his investigations into the powers that be and the political bosses that ran that corner of Texas got his nose a little too tanned. And at one point, he also pointed out that a local deputy sheriff was running a house of prostitution just outside the city limits. And the sheriff didn't take that too kindly. So he met him out on the street and he killed my grandfather in the middle of the street. The deputy sheriff got life for that in what you can imagine is one of the more comfortable Texas prisons in 1949. He was about to talk to the ex-governor of Texas in 1952 because he had dirt on the political bosses, and he had information on what down there was known as the infamous case of Ballot Box 13, which held 200 and some odd votes that showed up at the last minute that turned a Senate election in favor of a young guy by the name of Lyndon Johnson. And he finally got to the point where he said to the ex-governor who was investigating this scandal, I know where those votes are. I know where the ballot box 13 came from it, where it went. And the governor made his way down to see the guy, accompanied by a Texas Ranger, Frank Hamer, who was the guy who shot Bonnie and Clyde. But on the way down, they got interrupted in their travels from the Capitol down to or to get over to, to Huntsville prison because the night before this deputy sheriff hung himself in his cell, except no, he didn't. No jailhouse suicide whatsoever. He was shut up by somebody lest he spill all kinds of beans on all kinds of people. Now I'm sitting here in my basement in New Jersey. And as with the pages of a book, one thing after another, there is nothing normal about my father's side of life. Nothing. Example, you ask, is uh, first wife, they were kids, kids in Ohio, got married too early. Her dad was the full-time chauffeur of one of the big tire bosses in Akron, Ohio, in the first half of the century. Billionaire times over factories everywhere. This is the kind of guy who came home and said, honey, I'm home. I was uh, out today uh, driving the boss around the factory with President Coolidge. So there's just nobody in this whole century-long story that's normal, who's just, like I said, a farmer, some guy in a store, nothing. Every, there's just stories flying out of my ears. And it took months and months to track all this stuff down because I wanted to know. And every time you'd turn over a card on the deck, you'd have to turn over the next card and the next card. It just went on and on.
sure to join us the first Sunday of every month for breakfast and brick walls. If you are a genealogist who needs some help breaking down a brick wall, be sure to email us at the number two heritage.hunters at gmail.com and join us on Twitter spaces to see if our audience can give you a hand. Our first episode of Breakfast and Brick Walls will be on Sunday, January 8th. And then after that, it will be the first Sunday of every month at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. We look forward to hearing from you and seeing you on Twitter Spaces. And then ended up finally after four years and change as Please Stand Up, now available at your favorite online retailers. And, and some of it, a little bit is still going on. And one of the things, and then I'll finally bring my narrative to a close because you probably have something to say. Like I said, one of my brothers lived over in Pennsylvania an hour away. My father's sister, my aunt, much like my mother, went into nursing. She did it later in life, but went into nursing. She was in California. She ended up in nursing studies back in Philadelphia around 1970-ish and lived the next town over for where I'm living now. And she and her son, my cousin, could have been sitting on the same commuter train in 1971 with me heading over to Philly, them to their work, mine to mine, when I started out in newspapers. Could have been sitting right there, Aunt M and Cousin D. I don't know. So none of this was, a lot of this was far away, and some of this was sitting across the aisle from me on a commuter train or in a parking lot at a mall over in Pennsylvania or who knows what. And that's why it took four years for this to turn into a book, because it just wouldn't stop coming. Just wouldn't stop. Wow. I could listen to you forever. Oh wow. My really? <laughs> my wife never says that. So tell me, did you get to meet your brothers and sisters? I got to meet my older brother, who was the homicide cop in Ohio, when I first finally found him. For sure, I learned that he was falling to dementia. So it was a real race against time thing, but I got to spend two meetings with him, one in the company of my wife, one in the company of my older son on a road trip to Ohio before he passed. And uh, he already knew the other siblings from my father's other marriages. And those folks had mingled in the past. Some of the other sibs knew, just as I knew that there was other folks out there through court filings and stories from my mother, they knew from court filings and stories from a mother that I was out there. They didn't know my name. They didn't know anything about me. What's what I was just this shadowy figure out there someplace. So it was a bit of a race, but I did get to meet my older brother and he commented often to his wife, just as I commented to my wife about him, he seems the most like me. He'd been born early to my dad and his first wife. They'd broken up and it was just him and his single mom. 
my father drifted in and out of his life from his older teenage years forward. So he'd had some exposure to the guy, whereas I had nothing. But not just in how we look as older guys, but in a lot of other ways. When you meet a sibling that you don't know about, they don't necessarily have to be a twin, but you think, oh, gee, well, will they like fish the way I do? Will they cross their legs at the same time? Will they feel the same way about politics or sports or whatever? And even though on those subjects, no, not necessarily, we did feel in very intuitive ways that I was the most like him out of all of Burton's kids. And he was very much the most like me. So that was a real connective thing. The guy who lived over in Pennsylvania, he came into my backyard and met my wife and my children. We had another lunch and met. He succumbed to what I'll just politely refer to as far too much overactive living alone in a hotel room in Florida almost two years ago. I have other sibs spread out from Maine to Florida, one of whom I've spoken to only once, one of whom I've not spoken to at all, even though he knows I'm here and I know he's there, but I've been told by other sibs, well, that's just the way he is. That's his life. That's how he conducts things. And it's not you, it's him. Don't worry about it. Okay. You can't be charming with everybody. Okay. So I've had meetings. I've had a lot of long conversations. I've got hours and hours of taped phone conversations for the sake of the archives, let's call it, for the sake of the oral histories of this clan. And then also as a basis for factuality when composing the book. And what was the most astonishing or surprising thing that you learned about your father? After a while, moments of astonishment got to be status quo because he wasn't just this regular guy. And I'm not going to point out just one kind of a light bulb or after everything that I just told you, there was this. If you if I blew your mind already, there's this. No, I'm not going to I'm not going to go that direction. <laughs> but for a long time, the question was always out there: What kind of a guy would do this to me and my mom? What kind of a sob would just yeah. go do this? I'll say parenthetically: Back when I was a kid, 1952, three, four. Back at that time out of 150 million or so people in the United States at that time, there were 3 million paternal orphans, kids with no dad. These were kids whose father did not come back from some mortar pit in France or did not come back from the Hozon Reservoir in the middle of winter in Korea. These are guys who walked away in some impoverished urban setting or fell over because they were shoveling too much snow in the driveway or got T-boned outside the diner over in Brooklyn at that bad traffic circle. There were 3 million people like me. So I was a part of this cultural group. So there are a lot of people out there missing the same thing when they're two, when they're four, when they're 12, when they're 17, when they need to know about life, about girls, about this, about that, whatever the case. Not to mention how many females there were without a dad, which is a whole different statistical base I know nothing about. So after 
knowing that I was in this special group for all these years, eventually I came to, after everything that I found out about the guy and his life, then I finally got to the answer to the question, to answer your question. It's the one remarkable thing that I finally came to grasp what kind of a guy would do what he did to my mom and me. He's a guy who saw his mother die in a car crash when he was five years old in front of him, who was shipped off to a military school down south by his father and the father's, the grandfather's third wife to straighten this kid out, who escaped that life and immediately after his 16th birthday signed up for the merchant marine and was accepted because all the older guys were in the active military and they needed people to make coffee and mop the decks and do all this other stuff on the thousands and thousands of merchant ships active in the war. And even though nothing happened to him at sea, what does he know? Where's the next torpedo coming from? Where's the next strafing run coming from? Where's the next mine coming from? As these ships are going back and forth across the Pacific and back across the Atlantic. A guy who ended up Two months after D-Day in a port in France, learning then how to tell tall tales about himself in order to make an impression on somebody and be the bigger shot, who at the age of 22 had his father killed by a cop down the dusty streets of Texas who turned himself into a deep sea diver and went was in and out of jail, in and out of debt, in and out of conflict, in and out of stuff, who married six women in seven different arrangements, eventually. Maybe this is the kind of guy who did what he did to my mom and me. And I'm not giving you this to say, oh, now I sympathize. Oh, the poor guy. He was put him in front of me now and I'll punch him in the nose. No. But I think that's the most substantial, important thing to me is not, oh, he did this thing or he did that thing, or there's this historical moment. That it's more about what I carry around on the inside now. Sure. Now that I've yeah. learned about this guy. Wow. That's one thing the book does that makes everybody feel better. And also gave you a really nice connection to things that I had not been interested in, the genealogy and all that kind of stuff. Because now the internet does offer uh, copies of 100 years of newspaper. So I was just finding out all sorts of stuff. And my, my wall in front of me was like a CSI show with cards <laughs> and strings and pins <laughs> flying all over the place. And uh, so I got a, rem a re remarkable wealth of information out of 50 different newspapers, everything from the Podunk Texas News to the New York Times. My grandfather's legacy in, in, in particular, uh, up to when he was killed and then afterwards, uh, just went on and on uh, because he had been a somebody in industry in Ohio and a somebody in the newspaper world in Detroit and San Francisco and other places. His murder was on the front page of the New York Times. Happened on a Friday and he was on, he was front page news in some places of one of the papers in Chicago in a type size that splashed across page one that you would normally get for war is over or Cubs win pennant. And here he was in this size. 
His gravestone started off a piece on CBS 60 Minutes in 1974 when Mike Wallace revisited old Texas political corruptions. His story is still referred to in journalism schools. He was the second broadcast journalist that's been recorded who was killed over the free press. And in finding out where he came from, that side of the family, my grand paternal side, traces back to Edwardian England. And uh, I was poring over people who are familiar with your program and enjoy this kind of a thing themselves have poured over all these census records and shipping records and immigration notes and this and that. So I know where my grandmother, Wild Bill's first wife, was living in 1920, or no, I guess it was, maybe it was 1930, but he dumped her in San Francisco and she was living in the, some tenement house in Chicago. And here's the name of the border. Not only was I finding out about my grandfather and which of his wives and which of his kids were living in such and such a place, but also who was renting the back room and what they did for a living during the Depression. Right. So I delved to the, as much as I could without driving myself crazy into all these interesting old records and what ships my father was on and what ports of call he was in. And if all that wasn't enough, while I was in the last phases of the book, but still compiling a lot of information, this goes back about three years or so, the, this group of siblings had not gotten anything of my father's uh, over the years. But his last wife was on a trip. And this is two years ago. And finally said, let's get this stuff out of the basement. Let's pass this over to these other members of the family. Let's get out of here. Let's pass it. And my older brother got this nautical ring that he'd always wanted, this ring of his dad's. And there was a big box of pictures that everybody was sifting through when I paid this visit. And there was a big box of other stuff. So to work on the book, I took the histories that were compiled by my grandfather and my father. So I have my father's diaries from the 50s and 60s and 70s when he was out doing his stuff as a deep sea salvage diver and other things. I have my grandfather's diaries when he was a reporter in San Francisco back in the 1920s, where he kept bumping heads with an antagonistic district attorney over across the Bay in Berkeley, a guy by the name of Earl Warren, who ended up as the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. As I said, nobody in this family story is just a plain person. So with all these diaries, these histories, the world of newspapers now on the internet and publications on the internet and access to the census records and the shipping records and this, that, and the other thing. I probably had a lot more volume. I certainly had a lot more volume there than I ever suspected I would when I thought, oh, look at this weird thing that happened to me. I'll write it up in 12 pages and sell it to a magazine. So wow. much like a lot of you folks in your audience, 
to go after this with determination. I'm going to find out you know, what my great aunt's name was when she was back in you know, who knows whereville in 1736. This stuff just trickled. I can't say it just fell on me. Like I'm just la, it just came to me. Of course, I had to dig it up as much as your audience digs it up. You two folks that have dug things up. But it's certainly not what I expected I was going to do when I sat here at the same desk where I'm talking to you now, back in October of 2016, preparing, having all this stuff just drift in, cartoon-like, as uh, it's kind of like the old prison pictures where they have the calendar on the wall and the pages rip off by themselves and drift because the lifer is counting the months. All this paper just kept floating down on top of me. And then finally all ended up as Please Stand Up, available at your favorite online retail. Keith, what, what an amazing story and journey you've been on. Wow. I just can't imagine. My mom was a saint. My grandmother, who was the finest woman I ever knew, who raised me the first 14 years of my life. You know, those are the people who taught me all the golden rules of my life. So I have a lot of normalcy in my family, too. Just not on my father's side. It's a balance. Yeah. Yeah. I have Mother Teresa over there. And I have a clown car over there. And, <laughs> and then there's seven rings. Do you feel you've broken that cycle with your own life? My kids know what's going on. I never said anything to them either. Their mother's side was a big, raucous family with cousins bouncing around and all this. And my side of the family was just going to my mother's apartment for a nice Christmas dinner, a nice quiet dinner with a little terrier barking around. And they knew that dad didn't have a father. And I told them what my mother told me, that there are all different kinds of families and this is what you have and it's perfectly okay. So they never asked in the same way I never asked my mother because they just, that's just how it is with dad. Right. Who knows who was going around in their heads? But I know that when I finally sat down with them a couple of years ago and opened up the laptop and brought up the video of To Tell the Truth from 1961 and told them about my, what had led up to that moment and then showed it to them, my daughter was just ecstatic, bouncing off the walls. My son took it really, I won't say hard, but really to heart. It, because here's the male of the lineage that came before his dad. Here's where he came from. Really smacked them. You know, now they know everything there is to know. They, they know as much as I do, I think. And I did the same thing with my mother. There was just one night and very delicately where I was talking to her about, here's what I've been up to. And you know me, I'm the old reporter mom. And I started getting curious about some things. And I looked up a couple of things and and it came to this, and I opened up the laptop after careful preparation and showed her one and only husband of six months, 10 years later, after that breakup, sitting on a TV show. So I've never used the word closure in any of this. I don't know if there is a single word to describe any of this, but we're all better off having accomplished this than if not. That's for sure. Keith, I want to thank you again so much for spending some time with us tonight. 
And I'm really looking forward to reading your book. And I'm really glad that we've networked with you and we're able to have you on. And thank you so much for sharing with us I, everything I, I, that you I appreciate did. the invitation because I know that just uh, most of the folks that you have on the program and as well as most of your listeners <laughs> have what, for complete lack of any better term, modern slash standard genealogical stories are mm-hmm. fascinating to each family and stories of discoveries. It's been amazing how many people I've come across personally and also afar in the how many people found out in the past 10, 20 years that they've got, that either they are or have a sibling out there who was given up by their mom, who wanted to give them a better life, and then went on to create a more mature family later. And, oh, my mom is not my mom. Or people have found mm-hmm. that their dad is not their dad. Or some variation on this theme. Lots of people, I think the... Just with Ancestry.com, I think the figure is somewhere around twenty or 25,000 people a year get some result back saying, your parentage is, basically, your parentage is not what you thought it was. Right. How many emails fly back and forth across the country saying, listen, and I don't know how to tell you this, but I think I might be dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And I went through my version of that. So I appreciate you having me on the program because I know my story is different from most of the folks that you have. And uh, I had a lot of fun with you, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you had me on. Glad you let me talk about my book. Uh... Thank you for joining us today on Heritage Hunters. This has been a CNC production recorded and mixed by me, Barbara May. We would like to thank our guests for sharing their genealogical experiences and personal stories. Be sure to visit us on our webpage, heritage-hunters.com, and our many social media pages such as Facebook, Twitter, Locals, and more. Please leave us a review, like our page, and follow us to be sure to never miss our show. If you'd like to be on the show or have an idea for an upcoming episode, please email us at 2 heritage.hunters at gmail.com and that's the number two heritage.hunters at gmail.com we would love to hear from you remember to like and subscribe to our podcast we hope you'll join us next month on heritage hunters This has been a CNC production.